Hello, this is Robert Rickover at Body Learning, and today my guest is Sandra Bain Cushman, an Alexander Technique teacher in Charlottesville, Virginia. She's been a teacher for about 20 years, and she's taught a wide variety of people, and she has a special interest in uh, the relationship of the Alexander Technique to other mind-body disciplines. And we've just completed uh, a, a general interview on that topic. And this second interview is going to uh, cover what she refers to as the five relations. And it'll be a bit more, I guess we could say, practical or give people some practical ideas to, to think about whether if they're involved in any kind of a mind-body discipline, and I assume uh, even the Alexander Technique itself, if you're a student of the technique, this might be very useful. Uh, so, uh, Sandra, welcome to the program. Thank you, Robert. And once again, I'd like to ask you to just provide our listeners a really short description or definition of the Alexander Technique. I'm going to use the same one I used in the other interview. Go for it. I, I see the technique as a long-standing and perhaps the foremost, because it's been around for so long and it's so well-developed as a technique, method for mindfulness in the West. So we've drawn so much from the East about paying attention in the body and meditative practices but Alexander was a Westerner, and he developed this fabulous method that puts us in touch with our natural design, our natural coordination, and our natural expression. And it's a way of paying attention to oneself as you move around in your life. So not just as a form of disciplined sitting practice, or I mean, sometimes the technique is taught helping you move into and out of a chair and people say oh I'm learning to move into and out of a chair no you're learning to move you're learning to move in your body in a coordinated balanced centered attentive way so that's how I see the work okay and I believe you have um, five relations that you'd like to talk about Yes, this is something, this scheme is something that dropped in for me about three and a half years ago. I teach large groups of musicians, and it's always a challenge. I'll be on a course where they're studying the guitar, and I have perhaps an hour with a fairly large group. Mm -hmm. And I may have that several times throughout a week, but it's always, it's always a challenge to deliver some experience of the technique to a group that large. And when I was preparing to go out to Seattle to work with a group called Tuning the Air, which are a, a guitar group out there that's used the technique, some of them since 1985, in their, in their playing, this scheme called the Five Relations just sort of fell into my lap one morning, and as I was sitting, actually. So it has a little history with the sitting practice. Mm -hmm. And what it, what it amounts to is... Alexander had these, these cardinal directions. You free the neck in order for the head to go forward and up, in order for the back to lengthen and widen. The knees go forward in a way, the elbows out in a way. And he's describing the free coordination of the human body at its best. Mm -hmm. And yet, if you have a brand new student, a person off the street, as we say, who's never done any of this and doesn't have any skill getting whatever that wonderful recipe is to, to cook, to get it going. 
they'll start to try to do these weird things with their necks. I mean, I've actually had people come back years ago when I would teach them the next day and or the next week and say, you know, my neck is so stiff because I've been doing what you told me. Because you're working to find this head leads, body follows kind of balance. What I've realized over the years and what sort of became very clear for me on this particular morning and I've worked with it ever since, is that if you have some other relationships in the body that are going already, then yes, you free the neck, the head leads, the body follows, it all works. If you don't have these other relationships going, it, it's harder. It's stickier business. So the relations are, I'm actually going to begin with the zero point, which is the cardinal relation. The neck is free. You free the neck in order for the head to go forward and up. In other words, there's something about this little tippy balance of the head on top of the spine that frees us up. Very simple. If we begin with that idea, we begin with that, if you're working with a teacher, the teacher will put hands on you and give you that experience. Then very quickly, we, we sort of move over to what I call the first relation. Some other things that have to be considered for to maintain that head leads body follows and the first relation is that of your legs to the torso so you have these long legs and you have this long torso organized around the central spine and actually the person who does this the best I think of anyone I know is Anne Matthews up in Orangeburg New York has this fabulous way of working with the legs where she can sort of press down on your legs and your spine pops vertically vertical like a a banana you know when you squeeze the skin of the banana the banana shoots out she just has this way of engaging legs out in a way and your spine just goes up if you watch a little child who's crawling come to sitting they let the legs release toward the floor and the spine just sits right up or if someone's lying on the floor and you send the legs out long, the spine will just come up. There's this beautiful counterbalance in the body. And a teacher I studied with during my training named David Gorman, who's done a lot of things with anatomy, he talks about when primary control is engaged, we'll get to more of that as we go through the relations, when your neck is free and your spine's releasing into its springiness, it's up, the legs basically are dangling down from the upward releasing spine and gently resting your feet on the planet. Very different from thinking, oh, these are pillars that hold my weight. So your spine's releasing up, your legs release down. When you go into bending, the spine goes up and over, the legs fold, the knees go forward and away. So there's this beautiful interaction, torso and legs. And if people don't, if they have very stiffened legs or they haven't much connection to the legs, you can only get the spine freeing up just so much because the legs are weighting it down or they're bracing. So that's the first relation. Mm -hmm. And just to um, add a little bit to that uh, idea that, uh, of course, Alexander teachers are generally very interested in the head-neck relationship because it's huge implications for everything else. But at the same time, the leg-torso relationship is one that involves some pretty strong musculature. Yes. And, uh, and a lot of people really misuse that. They tighten, they pull their legs in, they tense, they stiffen. And so 
the relatively delicate stuff that you can do with your head neck, even though it is pretty far ranging, kind of runs up against a physical barrier almost if someone's clenching their legs like crazy. It definitely so. does. And I, I make jokes to my students that for every personal trainer that's out there getting people to strengthen their quads, there's an Alexander teacher getting them to try to undo them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because because right. quadriceps strength really is not the whole recipe for coordination in the body. Well, um, it needs to be properly directed for sure. Exactly. It's to be and strong. It, yeah. And it needs to fit into the coordination of the whole. Exactly. Which is what this, this whole scheme is aims to do. As I move on to the second relation, it it becomes interesting. It's like the Russian dolls where one, one doll fits inside the other. The next relation actually fits inside the first relation because it's within the torso itself. And the second relation is that of the head to the pelvis, that your head counterbalances your pelvis, your pelvis counterbalances your head. So if you think of the spine for a moment as this segmented, curved, dynamic, rotational structure with its little cushions between each vertebra, At one end of that, you have this neck-free, head-forward-and-up nod of the head, this little articulate forward nod. And if you watch a toddler walking around, you actually really see it because their heads are still pretty big in proportion to their bodies. Mm -hmm. They're also pretty skilled because they're very much in their bodies. There's just this constant little forward nod of the head. At the opposite end of that spine, in opposition, in a lovely dynamic-producing opposition, to the head is the pelvis and the pelvis tends toward the opposite nod what I would call a reverse nod Um, a friend a woman I know who actually studied with Marge Barstow years ago she refers to when we hold the pelvis rigid and we really hollow the backs the back of the body we get something called a duck's butt where we're just holding up that pelvis I think people call it a pelvic tilt Mm -hmm. the other thing that people do I call it sort of like what a bad dog does to tuck the tail between the legs is when people sit in a chair, they actually are not sitting on the pelvis, on the sit bones. They've curled it under themselves, so they're in a C-shape, in a slump, and they're sitting on their lower backs. Hence, they get lower back pain because they're actually not sitting on their rockers that are at the base of the pelvis. They're actually sitting on the base of the spine. They're slumped onto the base of the spine. So this counterbalance depends, if you're in sitting, upon balance on your sitting bones, which are these beautiful little rockers built into the body, into the base of the torso, and then that nice free neck at the opposite end. And if you have those two things in play with, because each relation builds on the one before it, with your legs free and counterbalancing the whole torso, then you start to get something kind of wonderful happening in terms of your balance. And it might be useful uh, just if you could briefly tell people how they can locate those uh, sits bones on themselves to determine if they are in fact sitting on them. There are a couple of ways. And actually, there's a funny story that goes with one of them. We have a trainee who in her second year was looked, trying to help her husband find his sit bones and he was sitting on a hard wooden chair and she put her hands under And he said, you know, isn't that hurting your hands? And like a good Alexander trainee, she said, oh, no, no, they're fine. Well, it was crushing her hands to have his sit bones pressing her hands into a wooden chair. So the advice is find a padded chair, but not an easy chair, but a padded, hard-backed chair. Put your hands under 
your bottom and just feel for rockers. They're big. You'll feel them. They'll sit right in your hands. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, it means you have to sort of adjust yourself until they do because it means you're probably not sitting on them. You're probably sitting it's, on your sacrum, which is a You're probably of, sitting mm -hmm. on your sacrum. Yeah. Or you could even be so tilted in your pelvis that you're sitting on your legs. You're oh, yeah. yeah. Your legs, yeah, which happens. That's possible, too. Yeah. Another really cool way, once you find them, a way to take them out for a little spin is to either sitting on the floor with your legs outstretched in front of you or sitting on a chair with your feet on the floor, walk on them. Take in, this sounds very basic, but take yourself over onto one, say your right sit bone, I'm doing it right now, in order to walk your left one forward, then lean all the way over and you're in your left sit bone to move your right forward, just like you would walk on your feet, you're gonna walk on your sit bones. And you can walk forward and backward on your seat a few times Say you're sitting at the computer for an hour or two. Every so often, take a little walk on your sit bones, and you'll find your sitting balance and your back really release and get much more dynamic. So it's really a, a very good example of bringing your awareness to the actual reality of your structure and taking advantage of it. Because those sit bones, those sit bones are like perfectly designed to to allow you to transfer your weight to a chair for example and to move around easily there there it's almost like someone said well human beings are going to do a lot of sitting somewhere down the road you know, when, <laughs> when, com this. when computers come and or office work shows up in the human uh world so we're going to design a little structure here so that they'll find it very easy to do that if they pay attention and actually use it. And that's kind of what we're talking about here, I guess. Well, some years ago, one of my young children, they're now grown, but many years ago, one of my young children fell down outside on the ground and I went over and scooped him up and started to rock him. He was screaming. I think he fell on cement, actually, as I remember. He often did. And as I was holding him, I began to rock and I realized I was rocking on my rockers, that only in the Western culture would we build a chair with rockers when we actually have them built into us? And I've just had the opportunity to travel around the world this past fall for four months with Semester at Sea, a university program. And people around the world, by and large, don't use chairs as much as we do. People in India do all their work sitting on the ground or squatting. In, in Africa, the same. Um, yeah, China. In, in Africa, you have to learn how to squat. You really can't get away with sitting on the ground because the bugs will get you. Exactly. Um, no, and, and, there are, and there are no chairs in a lot of places, so you're out of luck if you don't if you can't go into a deep squat. And in or Vietnam, up, they yeah, have yeah. in Vietnam they have these wonderful little tables all around where they serve street food. They serve pho, which is yeah. their wonderful soup, right. and the chairs are about four inches high. They, right. They're just enough to support your sit bones under you, but you're not sitting up off the ground in a big chair. Right. Well, let's move on to the third relation. The ribs. The rib cage, which we think of as being this often this fixed held structure, has something like 80 movable places in it. It's got the way the ribs articulate with the vertebrae in the back. Each rib articulates with two different vertebrae, the way it comes around and attaches into your sternum. There's all this flexibility in the rib cage. So most of us hold the ribs quite rigid. 
In Alexander's day, the big sort of cultural habit of how to stand and project, he was an actor, was to sort of lift the chest and, and throw the head back and have this very dramatic posture. And what we're looking for rather than that, or rather than the I've been sitting all day playing video games posture that we have now in our culture, which is the ribs totally sort of dumped over forward into a slump, we're looking for something that I call ribs neutral. And the person I've, I've studied this with is somebody named Jessica Wolf in New York who teaches the art of breathing. And she talks about in order to have efficient breathing, which has a great deal to do with our upright bearing and our freedom in the vertical, our reflexes, we really need the breath to be free. And in order to have the diaphragm, that cross-secs the whole body like this living, beautiful tent that makes excursions up and down through the core of the body. In order to have all that happening, we really need the ribs free in three dimensions. We need them to be allowed their natural width. We need them to be allowed their natural depth, front to back. And we need them to be allowed their natural length, top to bottom. So most people, when you say point to your ribs, they point to their sides and they think, oh, there are my ribs. Well, your ribs go all the way up to the base of your neck. The rib cage tapers like an old-fashioned beehive all the way to the base of the neck. And then the shoulder girdle rests out across it. But the ribs aren't square at the top. They're very beautifully tapered. And they actually go down to about four inches, three inches above the pelvis. So you have this huge rib cage that houses your lungs and your heart. And you would want not to be squeezing that in all sorts of attitudes of holding around your lungs and your heart. The lungs and the heart need to move. The diaphragm needs to move to, to keep moving the residual air out of the lungs and bringing fresh air into the lungs. And a lot of our health and our biochemical balance really depends on that. So the physiology of the body is really influenced by the breath and the breath is housed in the ribs. And the ribs are you could say sort of the keystone dimension that, that keeps our body alive, really. Well, I guess the ribs and the, and the diaphragm together, yeah. I mean, that's how we get air in and out. So, And I think that a lot of people have, uh, as you say, very serious misconceptions about where the ribs are, where the diaphragm is, and how it how they function. I know that when I trained to be an Alexander t teacher back in the late 70s, I had no idea. And I remember seeing a picture of the rib cage, and I was <laughs> astonished that that's where they were. I, I, didn't, I had absolutely no idea about, about the functioning of the ribs. So a good Alexander teacher or even a person, a person could learn on their own using simple anatomy text could learn a few basic things about that structure, how it ties in with the sternum, the clavicle, all the rest of it, that might, might make quite a difference. Uh, in, and in if I can drop, breathe. can yeah. I drop a, a tag in? Sure. If you go to www.jessicawolf.org, I think it is. It might be net. I think it's mm -hmm. jessicawolf.net. You can click on a picture that was a schemat schematic diagram done by Carl Stow, and it shows you the movement of the diaphragm and ribs together. It's gorgeous. It's really gorgeous. You just can't take your eyes off it. 
um, because it shows all three dimensions and it shows the excursion of the diaphragm. It shows the ribs and the spine moving with every breath right, to allow that right. movement. It's, it's just fabulous. It's a fabulous thing to see. So, so go and click on it. Yeah. And okay, let's move on to relation number four. Relation number four, Alexander called it elbows out in a way. I've changed it to arms release out in a way. And I tend to follow out from the shoulder socket, which is in the back. You think of the arms freeing out to the elbow, out to the wrist, out through the hand, out to the tip of the thumbs, out to the tip of each finger in turn. You keep helping yourself all day long open out of what becomes this very flexed state of the arms. We're hunched over computers, our hands are around steering wheels. You know, we no longer walk six miles a day to get our our water or to hunt for our food. So we have these weird repetitive motions that we make all day that have to do with holding the arms. And I really see in my students, and I also see the propensity in myself all the time, for the arms to lead the coordination as though what we're reaching for and grabbing for as we go out the door is the most important thing. And we completely do what we say in Alexander Lingo is we completely lose our backs. We lose the core. We lose the breathing. We lose the head balance. We lose it all because we're reaching for things and we're doing things with our hands. So the reason this is the fourth relation is it's sort of the, you need all the others the, the without which the arms can't work. So without which nothing. You have to have the head balance. You have to have the leg torso counterbalance, the head pelvis counterbalance, the free breath. Then we add the arms on. We drape that shoulder girdle and those arms across the top. And they are supported by all the other relations. So one of the tricks is to learn to do something like lean over or bend, we call it a monkey in Alexander work, where you're bending the way a three-year-old would bend, which is beautifully, your torso comes up and out and over and your legs fold under you. To learn to do that before you reach. So can I let my body go into a folded attitude before I reach for that thing on the floor? Instead of sort of half bending, reaching, twisting, twerking myself while I'm on the way to do something else. So we will notice, if you begin to really pay attention, your arms are always out ahead of you. Marge used to say, why are you pulling yourself all out of shape? Why are you doing that? Marge Barstow, who was our first teacher. And, And it's true. We let our arms pull ourselves all out of shape. One example is if you're in the car... I don't know about you, but there's always something in the back seat that I need, right? That I, once I'm in my driver's seat. And for years, I would torque myself and pull my neck and pull out my shoulder to reach back there until I realized, oh, wait a minute, I could turn the whole body around right. and then reach. I think people tend to uh, think, forget that their arms are really mainly conduits for uh, for active for doing things not the doers themselves primarily exactly and the other thing i think that uh, that almost everyone has uh, as as we might say mis- mismapped in their body is the idea that their arms are directly attached to their torso that in fact the actual only direct connection is right at the sternum which surprises people immensely when you demonstrate that to them 
But again, and they float freely on the back, which no one yeah, knows. Yeah, everything's designed. Yeah, the whole shoulder girdle is perfectly designed to float on top of the ribs. But if you have that mismapped, you end up creating a lot of extra tension, and as you say, letting letting the arm coordination control everything else. Whereas in fact, the arms, like the legs for that matter, are really subservient or should be subservient to the bigger picture exactly well the central coordination and then the, the fifth relation which is also the zero point we began now we free the neck now the head balances forward and up and if some of this is cooking one or two or three of these relations are a little bit in play which is really what happens for you in an alexander lesson mm -hmm. then you get something you get somewhere you free up Mm -hmm. So the head leads the whole thing. The eyes are what move us about. The stimulus of the eyes responding to the world is often what, what is our stimulus to move forward instead of the arms grabbing for something, for instance, or the legs taking off without us. Um, we really begin to let the head lead and the body follow. And if, if he, a listener uh, has lessons with an Alexander teacher, they'll discover that mechanism on them on themselves pretty probably pretty early on in the course of lessons but i think also it could be very useful to take a look at the actual uh structure of the head neck relationship from an anatomical point of view and what moves where and where uh where your head actually connects with your spine because almost everybody that i've worked with ha has had a completely incorrect uh, conception of that. Yes. It's, it, they, it, we think it's about four inches lower, lower than it is. Lower and further back, and people point yep. to the back of their necks, and they point, some people even put their, point to, or put their hand on the back of their head as being the place. And there's, there is kind of a, a rule of, 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 I guess you could call it a... Uh, principle of movement and posture which is that if you have if your conception of where things are differs from the reality of the structure the one that's going to win out in a sense is your conception not that you're exactly. going to change the location of the joint or how it functions but you're going to act as though it were somewhere else and that's going to end up inevitably putting a lot of extra strain on yourself so, and the muscular contractions and messages get scrambled. They get so scrambled. So that things, yes. things can't move the way they're meant to move. One of the things, and we all, every teacher has a different trick, but I'll have somebody simply say the letter K, ka, 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 ka. It's up there somewhere <laughs> where your head balances on your spine. Mm -hmm. So you, mm -hmm. you get that sense up above the hard palate, where the soft palate where is making that action. It's up above there and forward of there that, that the head balances. So it's way high. It's almost at eye level. That's kind of a shock to people. It I, is I almost think, at eye level. And so I, you could, I think you could say the eyes lead and the body follows would be another way to look at it. Yeah. And um, I guess one more thing that might be important to remember is that um, and earlier on, I think in our first interview, you, you mentioned that we tend to, th a lot of people's ideas about posture are based on a sort of a stacking model where you put one thing on top of another. And, of course, the head is on top of the spine, 
but the center of gravity of the head is definitely not over the spine. It's quite right. forward and up from the spine. And that is probably one of the cleverest design uh, systems going because you have the weight of the head, which is forward of the pivot point, and then the muscles of the back and side of the neck in just a nice balance with each other of everything is going well. After all of that, how could a small ki uh, child who's got a head much bigger in relation to their body uh, manage to have that kind of poise without that balance being present? Right. That it's an inbuilt imbalance it's inbuilt. of the head. It's inbuilt. So that the head keeps releasing and moving in order to activate all these wonderful reflexes. It's an amazing design. Yeah, we came we came really nicely wired up from the factory and we just figured we figured out ways of messing it up. Uh, <laughs> and we can we can figure out ways of unmessing it up. It's, well, it's and not Alexander that Alexander gave us operating instructions. And I think that that's yeah. More and more, I see that as an Alexander teacher, what we have to offer all of these other really fabulous practices for centering and bringing attention and so on is the actual operating instructions. How does the design work? How can we bring our attention in such a way that we support the working of our own design? Well, that, I think, is a perfect place to bring this interview uh, to an end. My guest has been Sandra Bain Cushman, who's an Alexander Technique teacher in Charlottesville, Virginia. She's been a teacher for about 20 years. She works with a wide variety of students. She has a particular interest in the connections between the Alexander Technique and other mind-body disciplines. Sandra, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Robert.